0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash loss. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 14, Mumming Birds. There were a couple of dozen of us hanging about The Fun Factory the next bright late summer morning, waiting to be told what to do and where to go. We chatted lazily in groups of two or three, smoking our cigarettes, casually taking the rise out of one another. Charlie was beaming all over his little face, having waited for his Hetty early that morning, and escorted her to her own rehearsal before heading on to ours. He described their stroll along Camberwell Road in terms that a romantic lady novelist would have balked at. Walking in paradise with an angel, etc., going on and on about the divine smell of the soap she'd used to wash her face. I was only half listening, as I was thinking about Tilly, who had cheerfully agreed that we should spend the following Sunday afternoon together. Suddenly the group stiffened, as if coming to attention, and Carno was amongst us. He nodded a wordless greeting to the group at large, then lighted on yours truly and Charlie. "'You two lads, a word if you please.' Once in his office he left us standing while he shuffled through some paperwork, then he turned his most piercing gaze upon us, making us feel rather as though we'd been caught scrumping apples in his garden, that's how I felt, anyway. Charlie was probably still thinking about soap. Now then, the governor began, after clearing his throat with a little cough. You've been with me how long now? Just under a year, Charlie said promptly, the keen little soldier. Just over a year, I said, in turn, keen to remind the governor of my slight seniority. Just so, just so, Carno nodded, steepling his fingers. And you've both learned most of the rep? London suburbia, jailbirds, early birds, the casuals. Won't detain you, the GPO, Perkins MP and so forth. Charlie and I nodded along as he ticked the sketch titles off. Well then, I think the time has come to complete your education. There's a company touring at the moment in Mummingbirds and I'm going to pull a couple of lads out and stick you two in there, see how you go on. It's Sid's company, Carno said, directing this remark particularly to Chaplin Jr. So he'll see you settle in all right. That'll take us pretty much up to Christmas and then we'll see what's to be done with you another little cough, and Carnot turned his attention back to his papers. The two of us stood a moment, unsure if we'd been dismissed. "'Don't both thank me at once,' Carnot said without looking up. "'Thank you, Governor,' Charlie and I both immediately said, exactly together, as though we'd been rehearsing it for years, and I saw Carno smirk. He knew that was going to happen, you see. Outside the Governor's office we were gathered up by Alf Reeves and delivered to the Miracle, where a company were to be running through mummingbirds for the week. We would learn the parts we were to play, plus all the other ones, as was the Carno way— and then we'd be dispatched to slip into Sid Chaplin's company like two freshly oiled cogs into a finely tuned engine. Now Mummingbirds, as I'm sure you know already if you've taken any interest in the halls at once, was then, and remains to this day, Fred Carnot's most successful offering. The idea came from a one-off evenings gala entertainment put on by the Water Rats, at which the Shah of Persia was a distinguished guest. This turned out to be a knowing burlesque of a typical night out in a music hall in which celebrated performers did each other's turns and all barracked each other relentlessly like the worst imaginable Saturday night at the Star in Bermondsey. Most present will have forgotten the whole affair by the next morning, but not Carno. He turned it into a hit sketch, Mummingbirds, in which a music hall bill within a bill was staged, featuring acts of excruciating awfulness, with the comedy coming from the raucous reactions and heckles of a fake audience housed in two pairs of extra boxes constructed on either side of the stage. The principal comic part was that of an inebriated swell who would stagger in late, disturbing the first act, and thereafter continually clamber into or fall out of one of the lower boxes. In one of the opposite boxes, you would find a naughty boy dressed in an Eton suit and armed with buns and a pea shooter, and his guardian, a dotty and indulgent old uncle, or aunt, if it was Johnny Doyle. The acts themselves, all introduced by a number man, would be something like the following. A hapless vocalist would recite The Trail of the Yukon, followed by a female singer known as the Swiss Nightingale, who would massacre a ditty entitled Come Birdie and Live With Me, a mustachioed conjurer who insisted on the term prestidigitateur, would present a magic act of spectacular incompetence, and then there would be a rustic glee club, or a double act called Duff and Dyer. Finally, there was the terrible Turkey, a self-styled champion wrestler who would challenge all comers to a bout for a small cash prize. Naturally, the inebriated swell would take him on, which was the excuse for the free-for-all climax." We can only imagine the chagrin with which the King of the Water Rats, Mr Wal Pink, realised that his one-off gala show had provided the inspiration for his rival's greatest ever success. Mumming birds was like a rite of passage. Karno would have two, three, even four companies performing it around the country at any one time, and a couple more in America, and all the big names had played in it one time or another, so you couldn't be said to have truly arrived in the company until you'd been blooded in this sketch. Both Charlie and I were naturally highly delighted to be reaching this landmark in our careers and soon discovered that pretending to be a bad music hall turn required nice judgement. Charlie proved an excellent mimic and was able to replicate pretty much everything the established company we were rehearsing with were doing, adding little physical embellishments of his own. I was a little more concerned to force the various characters to resemble myself than vice versa, but by the end of the week we were both deemed ready to go out on the road. I was quietly hoping against hope that a significant part of the tour would be in and around the capital so that I could see Tilly and fan the small flickering flame of our romance. At lunchtime on the Friday, I asked Alf Reeves. Alf, I said, where are we due to play, do you know? Aberdeen, he replied. My heart sank. Even I knew that Aberdeen was in Scotland. And where after that? Alf stroked his chin and rooted round for the list, finding it in an inside jacket pocket. "Ah, Greenock? Glasgow, Blackburn, then Hartlepool, Middlesbrough, Ardwick, Warrington, Southport, Burnley and Birkenhead. Who's a lucky boy then? Only one of those sounded even remotely promising. Southport? That's south, isn't it? Sunny south coast? Quite handy for London? (laughs) No, son, Alf said, clapping a hand sympathetically on my shoulder. Not even close. It's near Liverpool. Worse was to follow, though, as at the end of the day's play, Alf warned Charlie and me to be sure and pack our bags as we'd be leaving for Scotland the next evening on the overnight train. This threw me into a panic, as it meant I would not be able to see Tilly on the Sunday, nor even at pay night on the Saturday to warn her I wouldn't be coming, and of course I didn't have her address or know what theatre she was at because I was such an utter chump, so I was stumped. In the end I scribbled her a note, hoping that when I returned we would be able to continue where we were now being obliged to break off. It really wasn't the world's best or most romantic of notes, but the drafts I rejected were even worse. I was going to pin it to the notice board at the fun factory in the forlorn hope that Tilly might spot it there, but in the end, as I was leaving the Bells' house in Streatham with my bag on the Saturday afternoon, I spotted Freddie K. Jr. arriving next door to visit his mother. I still hadn't asked him about that, and handed it to him. Oh, yes, of course, I know who you mean. Your wife. My wife, yes, that's the one. Thanks, Freddie. I didn't disabuse him. I was in a hurry. And anyway, I didn't want him taking advantage while I was away, did I? Now, if you ever find yourself in a position where you are embarking on a professional rivalry with someone you don't really know very well, then you could do worse than travel by train from London to Aberdeen with them. You'll know them a whole lot better by the time you get there, I guarantee you that. Mind you, I thought at first I'd be making the journey alone. In those days, if you'd said to any of us that Charlie was a genius... "'We'd have thought you were referring to the particular kind of talent "'he had for missing trains, "'and it was only when we stopped at rugby "'that I discovered that he'd managed to leap aboard the guard's van "'at the very last instant. "'Now he was able to stroll along the outside of the train "'and find our compartment. "'He wasn't a happy chap. "'He mumbled a greeting, stowed his bag, "'then slumped down by the window with his chin on his fist. "'He hadn't shaved, his collar had come adrift at one side, "'and his hair was all over the place. "'It was the girl, of course.' He was being forced apart from the gorgeous creature whose praises he'd been singing non-stop the whole week, boring us all to tears, and naturally that was getting him down. "'It's only three months and then you'll see her again,' I said. Charlie just grunted and stared out of the window, the very picture of melancholy. I thought he was overdoing it a bit, to be honest. 3 months. Actually, that felt like a long, long time. Everything could have changed by then.' As the fields rolled by, I found myself bleakly imagining meeting up with Tilly again, and she'd have got married in the interim to a greengrocer, not sure why I thought that particularly, and be heavily pregnant, not practically possible in that short space of time, and pretty soon I'd made myself feel very nearly as fed up as my travelling companion. Chaplin perked up a bit when a steward popped his head in at the door to inform us that we could have supper now if we pleased, and he remarked that he'd not eaten since breakfast the day before. "'Why ever not?' I asked and he sighed a heavy, melodramatical sigh before leading the way to the dining carriage. As we waited for the main course to arrive, Charlie shoved bread rolls in his mouth and explained that it was not merely the thought of leaving Hetty behind in London that was the root of his depression. It was the fact that the budding romance was over entirely. Over? I said. Dead. Dead. Dead as a doornail, he lamented. How so? It was two days ago. I asked her to marry me and she broke my heart in pieces. "'I was astonished. "'You asked her to marry you? "'How long have you known the girl?' "'A week. "'It was the most profoundly affecting week of my life. "'I shall never forget her, "'and shall never again love so deeply nor so well.' "'You asked her to marry you, and you've only known her a week?' "'Well, yes, it was a test to see if she loved me. "'A hypothetical case.' I asked her, supposing she were to be compelled to marry somebody, would she marry me or somebody else? And she said she didn't know, which is as much as to say she doesn't love me. So I said perhaps it would be best if we didn't see each other any more, again as a sort of test. And she agreed. Can you believe it? I couldn't believe it. I wasn't exactly a leading authority on dealing with the fairer sex, but I think I knew better than to behave as Charlie had done.' "'Then yesterday morning I arrived to escort her to work as usual. "'He went on, and her mother appeared at the door in her stead "'and told me that I was not to see Hetty again "'and that she had plans for her daughter, "'which did not include consorting with a ragamuffin stage monkey four years her senior. "'I begged to hear it from Hetty's own sweet lips, "'and sure enough she was listening behind the parlour door and stepped forwards. "'Well,' I said, "'I've come to say goodbye again. "'And do you know what she said in return?' "'Goodbye?' I guessed. "'And do you know I was bang on the button?' Exactly, Charlie cried, and shrugged, as if to say, women, which reminded him. Hey, what about you and the girl you were with at the Trocadero? Oh, I said, trying to put him off. She's just a super in one of the governor's companies. You like her, though, don't you? Oh, yes, I like her well enough. I'll probably see her when we get back to London. Probably, he scoffed. You should have pursued her night and day, as I did with Hetty. We finally arrived in Aberdeen in the middle of the next afternoon, and Sid Chaplin was there to meet us. Well, to meet Charlie, of course. The brothers were obviously happy to see one another, and Sid plainly believed the sun shone out of Charlie's backside, which chimed pretty neatly with Charlie's view of the universe, so they had plenty in common. Charlie and I had begun to rub along in a pretty friendly fashion, and Sid's attitude to me thawed accordingly over the next few weeks. That first afternoon, though, I just traipsed along behind their reunion, listening to their inconsequential catching up, and outside the station they merrily got into a cab to go off to the handsome digs they'd be sharing, while Sid squashed a piece of paper into my hand with the address of my lodging scrawled upon it and I was left standing alone on the pavement. When I finally located the place, I realised I was in for a wretched old week. I knocked on the door of a tiny little shack down by the docks and a crone appeared, When I explained who I was, she beckoned me in with a bony finger and then showed me to a hammock, an honest-to-God hammock, slung across one end of a tiny kitchen. Not even a spare room, the kitchen, which was the main living room of the whole tiny place. Her husband, it appeared, was a fisherman and was presently out at sea on his boat and thanks to him, the entire place reeked of fish. It wasn't just the digs, either. The whole grim grey granite town smelled of fish. Every night in the theatre, the grim grey granite audience, carved, it seemed, from the same stone as the buildings, smelled of fish. Every meal seemed to be fish as well, apart from the breakfast, which was porridge that tasted vaguely of fish. Charlie, meanwhile, was staying at the Imperial Hotel, where apparently there was no room for me, in a room adjoining his brother's. The rest of the company was an agreeable enough assortment to knock around with. Jimmy Russell and Johnny Doyle were the main support for Sid as the drunk, Russell the exasperated master of ceremonies, and Doyle in drag as the outraged matron aunt. There was Albert Darnley and Frank Melroyd, lovely Amy Minister, Dotty Dolly Baker, Sarah Dudley, solid old Ernie Stone, and the stalwart Carno couple George and Lily Craig, who were usually to be found touring the country together. In fact, they spent so much of their year in digs and hotels, I'm not sure they even had a house of their own to go home to. When I turned up at the grim grey granite theatre on the first morning for the get-in, a sharp-looking rake, who was, it seemed, also on the strength, introduced himself thusly. Hello there. "'Chaz Sewell, which is to say Charles Sewell, but I go by Chaz.' "'You're not a Charlie, then?' I gagged, and his shoulders slumped a little. "'No, you see, that's exactly it. "'I've just got fed up of being described as a proper Charlie. "'Ha, bloody ha, ha. "'And what's more, you know, there's plenty of Charlies out there. "'Just look at the company for a start. "'There's Charlie Bell, Charlie Mason, Charlie Corrigan, Charlie Marshall. "'And Charlie Chaplin,' I offered. "'Who?' Sewell replied blankly which I mention only because it may have been the very last time in history that mention of that name elicited that response from a sentient human being. Chaz was a young chap, about my age probably, who was on his first Carno tour. We naturally began to knock around together, and also with Bert Darnley, who was an agreeably jovial sort of a type. He was maybe ten years older than me and Chaz, and had been with Carno for years. He was still only a number four, but seemed to have no particular ambition to move up. Slow but steady, that was Bert. He'd certainly been around, had worked with or near all the greats, and could name-drop for England. Bert's experience often came in handy. He showed us the best pubs, the best digs, the finest cheap eateries, and he seemed to be on friendly terms with every publican, waiter, landlady, novelty act, chorus girl, gymnast, manager and stagehand we ever came across. Bert Chas and I developed a particular fondness for Scottish beers, and began to follow the scheme for life laid out by the great Costa singer Gus Elan in his ditty half a pint of ale. For breakfast I never thinks of having tea, I like half a pint of ale. And so on through the day, with every meal supplemented by further halves. It certainly struck a chord with me, especially later when my own favourite way to greet the day was with half a bottle of Tennessee sipping bourbon, but we'll come to that all in good time. From Aberdeen we moved on to Glasgow, where you could hardly help noticing that the audience largely comprised blokes with eyes out, or else fingers missing, or parts of their ears gone. These were shipyard lads. Tough houses. The most popular acts on the bill, wherever we went north of the border, were in the Harry Lord of Vane. These would typically march about the stage in their kilts or their tartan trues, and troll some ghastly laments about heather and lassies and things being braw, or else bricht, and so on and so forth. Sid had the bright idea of pandering to the locals by changing the normal bill within a bill of mummingbirds to include a Scottish vocalist reciting a comically impenetrable Scottish poem. This backfired somewhat, as once the heckling and horseplay began from our unruly cast of characters, the audiences would shout out, Let him finish, English bastards! When I wasn't out on the town with Bert and Chaz, I used to like to walk and think. I couldn't help fretting that I'd missed my chance with Tilly and that by the time I got back to London she'd have struck up a romance with some other lucky chap. Had she even got my scribbled note? One Glasgow afternoon, left to my own devices, I wandered into Picard's museum. It was a gloriously balmy place to while away an hour or two, Picard's was. For a halfpenny you could hear a demonstration of the gramophone, for example, or you could put a penny in a penny winder and glimpse what the butler saw in thirty seconds of flickering naughtiness. You could marvel at the inexpertly stuffed walrus, done by a taxidermist who had never seen one of these creatures alive and so had smoothed out all its trademark wrinkles, making it look like a giant dirigible. Or you could stroll into the theatre, if you could call it that. I stood at the back bar, nursing half a pint of seventy shilling, minding my own business, watching the entertainment such as it was, when I heard a hushed voice close by. "'Mr. Dando, isn't it? Mr. Arthur Dando?' I turned, and there was a plumply pink-faced gentleman in his middle forties leaning on the bar beside me, decorated by a sheen of perspiration and a knowing smirk. "'You have the advantage of me, sir,' I said. It was an advantage he decided to hold on to a while longer. "'I greatly enjoyed your performance yesterday evening,' the fellow said, and I acknowledged this by raising my glass an inch or so. "'You're quite the coming man, I hear.' I regarded him curiously. He didn't seem to be the usual sort of after-show hanger-on. He'd have bought me a drink by now, for one thing.' ''That's what you hear, is it?'' I said. ''Oh, yes. The estimable Mr. Carno has his eye on you, and so do I. So do I.'' He took a sip from a tumbler of whisky and raised an eyebrow enigmatically. ''Oh, you do?'' I said. ''A fine employer, I've no doubt, our Mr. Carno,'' the fellow went on, ''but does he pay you what you are worth? This is the question you should be asking yourself, I think.'' ''The question I'm asking myself,'' I said, turning to look this smug chap full in the face, ''is who the devil are you?'' He looked a little put out at this, as though naturally he was such a substantial figure in the world that I ought to have recognised him at once. "'Why?' he spluttered, fishing out a card from the pocket of his silk waistcoat. "'I am Walpink, at your service, sir.' "'Now then,' I'd heard that name. This was none other than the celebrated King of the Water Rats himself. Insofar as the Governor had a rival worthy of the name, this pink was it.' His sketch repairs, a couple of years previously, had been a first tilt at Carnot's crown. Now, it seemed, Pink was back for another go. "'This is to give you fair and friendly warning,' Pink said. "'Myself and a cadre of fellow sketch-writers and performers, "'all water-rats of long-standing, are planning to incorporate. "'We have the backing, and we have all had enough of Mr Carnot ruling the roost, "'distorting the marketplace, making our lives impossible. "'It is our intention to bring him to his knees.' I observed him frostily. "'Really?' I said. "'Oh, yes,' Pink went on. "'And make no mistake. "'You are either with us or heading for Poverty Corner. "'We've already secured the signatures of many of your colleagues. "'No, I won't disclose names. "'And when we are ready to put our plans into action, "'their places will be secure.' "'I beg your pardon,' I said. "'What are your plans, exactly?' Pink glanced around to make sure no one else was within earshot. I will pay you twenty guineas on the date of your signature. In return you will agree to walk out on Carno and come to work for us, at an improved salary mind, when you are signalled so to do, which will be when we are absolutely ready to proceed. Most, if not all, of your colleagues will do the same, I assure you, and it will thus prove utterly impossible for Carno to fulfil his many engagements.' "'The new Walpink Company will step into the breach, "'thus supplanting him at a stroke "'and leaving his reputation in tatters. "'The so-called Fun Factory!' "'Here he became so excited "'that some spittle flew across the short space between us "'and landed on my bottom lip. will be finished!' "'I looked at Wallpink; his face flushed, a "'smug sneery smirk on his sweaty chops, "'and I wanted nothing so much as to give him a hearty slap. "'I should be on my way,' I said, draining my glass.' "'You need time to think, of course,' Pink nodded. "'You have my card. "'Step into my London office at any time "'and the arrangements can be made in a trice. "'Don't be left behind now.' "'I was going to show my disdain by leaving then, "'but blow me if he didn't jam his hat on his head "'and make for the exit a yard in front of me. "'There was plenty to think about. Twenty guineas was not to be sniffed at, "'and I could well imagine many, if not all, "'of my colleagues biting his plump little hand off. "'Could it really be that the end of the fun factory was nigh?' CHAPTER Fifteen. UNDER THE HONEYMOON TREE Scotland had its charms, undoubtedly, but we were all glad to hit the road, the Iron Road, back to good old England, and a week in Blackburn at the Palace. We came down by railway train on the Sunday. Bert Darnley, Chas Sewell and I set up a card school, while Charlie gazed mournfully out of the window in one of his poetical moods, occasionally sighing, Hetty. As we rattled along, the insidious cunning of Walpink's scheme began to dawn on me. I looked over at Bert and Chaz and found myself wondering whether the pennies they were laying down in wages had come from Pink's coffers. I couldn't very well ask them if they'd signed up, though, could I? Because what if they had? It was damnably cunning, the whole thing. Sad, in a way, too, I thought. The man had let his whole life be taken over by a rivalry, a rivalry, what's more, in which he could hardly hope to come out on top. Yeah, I know, I know. Mid-afternoon time, George Craig wandered down the train to sort out our accommodation for the week and eased his big yellow waistcoated belly into our compartment, wafting smoke theatrically from in front of his ruddy face. George ignored our moonstruck companion as we knew he would. We all knew that Charlie would actually be rooming with Sid at a Grand or an Imperial somewhere and there was no need to rub our noses in it. He thrust a note with an address on it at the other two lads, then looked over at me and said, You're with me and Lily from now on. He said it in a way that implied I knew why as well, so I wondered if I was being punished for something. Perhaps he'd seen me talking to Walpink. When he'd waddled off, Bert and Chance started ribbing me that management needed to keep a closer eye on me. Ha, ha, because of the demon drink. Ha, ha. But in truth, I was no worse nor better than either of them were back then, and I was sure I'd be able to slip the leash anyway once we settled in, so I thought no more about it. Once we arrived, I traipsed off with George and Lily then to these digs where they, as respectable married folk had quite a comfortable double bedroom. Across the landing, glory be, so did I, which was some compensation, I supposed, for being separated from the drinking party. There was already a trunk in there, set just inside the door, and I didn't think anything of that. The landlady, a jolly, buxom, pink-cheeked old stick, laid on some tea and cake downstairs, which I wolfed down, anxious to catch up with the other lads to see if Blackburn's hostelries were open for business. Now then, our hostess said as I made my excuses and headed out, "'She'll not be best pleased if they're late back. Think on!' She said it with a smile, though, and so I gave her and George and Lily a cheery wave and stepped out into the evening, pondering the local linguistic peculiarity of referring to oneself in the third person. Didn't ponder it for all that long, though. There was drinking to do. Near the theatre there were any number of welcoming establishments, in one of which I found my colleagues and spent an agreeable night off sampling the local ales. So agreeable, in fact, that I can't remember too much about it.' Come chucking out time, we all went our separate ways, they to their respective pits, I back to my unexpected and luxurious double room. I tiptoed softly up the stairs, not wanting she to be not best pleased, got myself into the big bed, and stretched out in all directions like a starfish, as you do. Then I curled up and dozed off. After a little while, who knows how long, I was woken by a creak of the landing floorboards. The door handle turned slowly, and the door opened, allowing a small figure to slip into the room. I wasn't too concerned, after all this wasn't a haunted house that I'd agreed to spend one night in to win some sort of inheritance. My beer-fuddled brain reckoned that this must be the owner of the mystery trunk trying to get his pyjamas or a shaving kit or something without waking me. Then the figure closed the door too again, plunging the room into complete darkness. I reached for the candle and matches which were on the bedside table. The match flared, the figure gasped, "'turned wide-eyed to stare at me, and I found myself staring back in astonishment. "'It was Tilly Beckett. "'We gaped at one another until the match burned down to my finger, "'and then I lit another one, and we began gaping all over again. "'What on earth are you doing here?' I said, when I'd recovered some of my wits. "'Only about half of them, though, or I would have kept my voice down. "'Oh, Arthur,' Tilly whispered more pragmatically, "'such a silly thing has happened.' She came over and perched on the edge of the bed next to me, making me acutely aware of the fact that I wasn't fully clothed, and what's more that I was really pleased to see her. I got your note, she breathed. Freddy brought it to me, and I was so disappointed just then, at that moment, not to be seeing you the next day, when I'd been looking forward to it so much all week. This, as you can imagine, was music to my ears, as they say, the people who say such things, poets and such. "'And Freddy's such a sweetheart, and he was right there, and asked me what was the matter, do you see? "'And he said he could swing it for me to come and be in the same show that you were going off to be in "'for three months without even saying goodbye or anything.' "'Here she slapped me crossly on the arm. "'Except he couldn't fix anything until one of the girls was due to leave at the end of last week "'in Greenock, wasn't it? "'And so I've been taken on, haven't I? A featured artiste, too. "'If the supers back at the fun factory get wind of it, I shall be torn limb from limb.' I came up from London this afternoon and met up with the other girls this evening. Amy, Sarah and Dolly, they seem very nice. Well, this is excellent news, I said, but listen, there'll be merry hell to pay if they find you in my room. Where's yours? I'll help you with your trunk. Tilly gave me a sheepish grin. That's just it, you see. This is my room. Your room, I said. Not especially quick on the uptake. Blame the beer. Our room. Freddy. Oh, (laughs) "'Freddy thinks we're married, doesn't he, because of that silly thing I made up to put him off. "'So we're in married digs. I'd no idea until I got here. "'Oh, what are we going to do?' "'We scratched our heads, tried to think what to do for the best, "'and in the end both of us felt the only sensible thing to do was to share the bed for the night "'after all there really was nowhere else for either of us to go, "'and try to clear the confusion up in the morning. "'Tilly blew out the candle, and I lay there with my heart pounding and my mind racing,' listening to the mysterious rustlings as she located and changed into her nightdress in the dark. Then the covers shifted, the bedsprings moaned, and she slipped into the bed alongside me. A warm breath of her perfume wafted over me, and I clamped my mouth shut desperately, trying to make sure that she didn't get a ghastly gust of northern ale in return. I lay on my back, with my arms by my sides like a corpse in a coffin, and if I can give you a hint of how I was feeling with that being too indelicate, let's just say that if I had really been lying in a coffin, there's no way the undertaker would have been able to screw down the lid. All may have been well, though. I mean, I wouldn't have slept a wink, but nothing untoward would have occurred, except that after a minute or two, her hair brushed my cheek, and she whispered in my ear, "'Aren't you going to give me a kiss good night?" And that kiss good night went on and on and on until the morning, when we found we'd both arrived at the conclusion that, well, if everyone thought we were married, then perhaps the simplest thing to do was to let them carry on thinking so. It turned out to be the easiest thing in the world. George and Lily greeted us at breakfast in the morning with that slightly prurient nudge and wink the older married couple likes to bestow on a younger, with a hint of, we know what you were up to, we were young once, mixed with the strange approval that goes with that for those who have validated their own life choices and at the theatre the rest of the company were charmed to meet Tilly and were remarkably unsurprised that I would have kept her a secret. After all, why should they have known about her? What business was it of theirs? Bert had a wife and he barely ever spoke of her. He and Chaz melodramatically lamented the loss of a drinking colleague, but both seemed thoroughly convinced that my excesses of the previous few weeks were now explained by my having been briefly off the leash. The only one who seemed to give the matter even a second thought was Charlie. He had met Tilly, of course, at the Trocadero that time, when we hadn't mentioned that we were married, and I'd also failed to mention the fact once on our long train journey north. "'Delighted to see you again, Mrs. Dando,' he oozed when we met at the theatre, managing to invest that slight pause before her name with more suspicion than seemed humanly possible. "'Tilly, please, not so formal,' my wife giggled as he took her hand and kissed it. "'I still haven't got used to it, have I, Arthur?' "'I fancy I smirked, rather, at this,' and Chaplin replied, "'Well, and you must call me Charlie. "'Now tell me all about your wedding day. "'This one's told us nothing at all.' "'And he hooked his arm in hers and led her away, "'the two of them chattering like a pair of old biddies. "'Tilly was enjoying herself, improvising happily. "'I gathered we'd had a small affair, family only, "'nothing too extravagant, in a little village church in Essex, "'on a lovely sunny day. "'It suddenly occurred to me that we might both need to have our story straight at some point, "'so I hovered nearby, committing Tilly's fantasy to memory as best I could.' Charlie glanced over at me once or twice. I could see he was curious about something, but he couldn't quite put his finger on what it was. Charlie and I had begun the Mummingbird's tour on an even footing, but Sidney Chaplin's favouritism towards his younger brother was not to be confined to swinging him the swankiest digs, I discovered. Our first forays into the comical mayhem of mumming birds were to be in the supporting roles of the naughty boy and the magician. Charlie was ideally suited to playing the boy, being slighter than me, slighter than almost everyone, actually, and it would mean that he would be on stage for the duration of the piece, so he snagged that part with his brother's approval. Meanwhile, I went to work on my portrayal of the hapless prestidigitateur, one of the better parts to play in the show within a show, actually, because although he was supposed to be bad, he was bad in a hammy sort of way, which was good fun to do. I even got to feel the power in action. It seemed to enable me to convey that even though the act I was portraying was bad, I myself was competent and funny and in charge, and I revelled in that feeling of strength. During our travels in Scotland, I'd found that I was getting more and more of a response as the magician, and was quite happy with the way things were going. Charlie was trying to catch the eye as the boy, but the part really involved little more than going yar-boo and chucking fruit about the place. Once we got going at Blackburn, I noticed the boy becoming more and more rowdy and vocal during the magician's act, almost as though he was trying to drown it out completely. I was so preoccupied and full of the joys of life, though, playing at husband and wife with Tilly, that I hardly minded. At the end of the week, Sid took me to one side in the pub after the last show. Ardwick Empire next week,' he said. "'Right you are, Skipper,' I replied jauntily, anxious to get back to Tilly and my pint. "'I'm making a change there,' Sid went on, catching me by the arm.' You'll be playing the naughty boy from now on, and Charlie's taking the magician. Got it? Um, yes, I see, I said. Any particular reason? I don't have to explain myself to you, Sid muttered. Just do as you're told. So from then on, I was the naughty boy, and to be honest, more than a little cheesed off about it. Still, I quickly worked out that my new role gave me the opportunity to throw oranges at Charlie's top hat, and I became so proficient at this that the next time Sid took me to one side it was to tell me to pack it in. I put it down to all the students v staff cricket matches I'd played back at the college. However I felt about what was happening in the theatre, there was always the prospect of a beer or two afterwards, followed by the moonlit stroll, arm in arm with my pretend wife, back to married digs, and the fraudulent conjugal pleasures we shared together. I don't have to paint you a picture, do I? I mean, I could do, but there's no way they'd let me include it in the book, so you'll just have to imagine. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, here we go. Two young people with bright and promising futures. She gets in the family way, and then it's all downhill from there. Misery, struggle, money trouble. Before you know it, more brats littering the place up. She drags him down. He resents her. She resents him for resenting her, and for ruining her looks, and her chances of bettering herself. We've all read that one, haven't we? Well, Tilly had read it too. "'I've seen too many girls fall for a baby,' she said once, "'and then you bump into them two years later, and they look twenty years older, "'gray hairs they haven't time to pluck out, "'and great red faces from boiling and boiling goodness knows what. "'Which is why, whenever we settled into a new town for a week on that tour, "'I would be dispatched to seek out the old red-and-white striped pole "'trying to find something for the weekend. "'I never quite mastered the art of going into a barber's shop "'and just acquiring the something for the weekend without the haircut.' For some reason, probably just sound commercial good sense, actually, now I think about it, those particular items never seemed to be on sale until after the trim was completed. Sometimes I'd have to have a shave as well before the old geezer in charge would admit to having any at all. Mrs Rennocks, the landlady Tilly and I stayed with in Ardwick, cooed over the two of us newlyweds to such an extent we were hard put not to burst out laughing. Tilly filled in much of the detail of our make-believe wedding day in her parlour, I seem to recall, Anyway, Mrs Rennicks was adamant that she would only allow married couples to stay in her rooms, because once she let to single men, especially theatricals, they got up to all sorts. We had to go out for a walk shortly after that, we were giggling so much, and ever after that, getting up to all sorts was what we called it, and all sorts was what we got up to in her house for the whole of that week. Charlie, meanwhile, was quite a hit as the magician, and I remarked on this to Tilly in the pub after the show one night. "'Well, you would think that, wouldn't you?' she said, rather to my surprise." "'What do you mean by that?' I asked. "'Well, it doesn't take a genius to see it,' she said. "'He's just copied exactly what you were doing, all your new bits, "'even down to that eyebrow thing of yours. "'I mean, he's funny enough, of course, "'but they're your laughs, really, when you think about it.' "'She was right as well. "'He was a great mimic, Charlie, no doubt about it. And imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, they say, don't they?' "'Well, I wasn't the first person to be flattered by Charlie, "'and I certainly wasn't the last. "'Once Tilly pointed it out, it really began to niggle with me, though, "'and the next night I picked out a couple of larger oranges.' I should have known it would take more than a couple of oranges to make a dent in Charlie Chaplin's progress. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.